Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. It's time to worship the Lord through study now. So first through fifth graders, if you're ready, do I have Miss Ashley ready? And Miss Allison, we got worship bags for you, so give them a second to get up here. And then you rush them like Black Friday at Walmart, and you come up here and get your worship bag. So first through fifth graders, come on up, get a worship bag. There's a booklet in there for you to follow along, notes for you to take, things for you to play with, maybe things for you to eat. I'm not real sure, uh, but that's in there. So first through fifth graders, you can come, come on, be excited. There's stuff in there. Yeah, come on. Can get some of that this morning. We do love family Sundays. We do a handful of them throughout the year. There's a few reasons for it. Most importantly is that we want them in here with their parents and grandparents, seeing what it's like to worship him as an adult. Uh, we want them around us to remind us that a church without children is a church that's dying. And we love it. We love hearing the rustling of rappers and a little bit of chitter-chatter, and uh, it's actually um, less when they're here. So it's better uh, when they're here with us. So we're excited about that. Hey, first through fifth graders, would you stand? First through fifth graders, just look at me. Just look at me for a second. I need to talk to you guys for a second. I love, we love that you are in here with us. And I know I'm no Miss Allison or Miss Ashley. I understand that. But I believe this about you. I believe the same Holy Spirit that lives in me and in your mom and dad, if they're following Jesus, can live in you if you're following Jesus too. And that same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead can help you today. And I believe that in your future, God will use you to change the world for his glory and for the good of people. And he can begin in it today. So I believe you can listen. I believe you can pay attention. I believe you can understand what the Bible says. The Bible is for everyone. This is not a throwaway day for us. This is an important day, and we believe that you are part of it today. So we're excited you're here. Let's study together, shall we? You can be seated. Exodus chapter 32 is where we'll be this morning. We're going to do the whole chapter this morning. So we've got a lot to get through. It'll, it'll be a little, the flow will be a little bit different this morning in the message. I'm going to teach as I read through it. Then I'm going to spend the last 15 minutes or so really, I think, hopefully, unpacking and doing more preaching than teaching there. And so that's the goal for the morning. Um, I don't know how many of you grew up, uh, but growing up playing things or sports or uh, games or toys or whatever it was, I grew up with five younger sisters and I love sports. I grew up loving sports. I mean, I could not wait to get home from school to go outside and play with my friends and play sports, play wiffle ball or baseball or games that we made up in the street. I also remember playing by myself in the front yard, especially as the sun would begin to set and I would begin to have these dreams out in the front yard about game seven of the World Series. Two outs, bottom of the ninth, and I'm up to bat. And good thing, because I'm an all-star, and I'm going to be a Hall of Famer. And so it's probably good that I'm up to bat, not the other guy who's batting ninth. But I'm up to bat, and we're, it's a tie game. We need a home run to win the game. And I would throw the ball up in the air, and I would just step forward, and I would swing. And if I missed, it would be a foul ball somehow. And so I get to hit again, because listen, in those dreams, I never struck out. I always hit the home run. Anybody relate to that? Man, I, I always hit the home run. If it's basketball, I'm in the driveway and it's a, it's a tie game in game seven of the NBA finals and I'm at the free throw line and I've got to hit one free throw to win the game. That's all I've got to do. And if I miss, there's a lane violation. I get to shoot again because I don't miss. And I win, I'm the hero every time. Maybe you grew up playing with dolls or playing house and you were always the best mom. You were the best wife. You were the best husband. As guys, we didn't play with dolls. We played with action figures. And so, I mean, they did the same things as Barbies did. They just had guns. And so we did that. And right in those stories, whether it was Transformers or G.I. Joe, whatever it was, your, your guys always won. You, you defeated the evil, and it just so happened that you were the general of the army, and you guys won, and, and all that. Maybe to bring it to modern day for us, um, you see those commercials about like weight loss plans or diet plans or you're scrolling the internet and you get these ads about how you too can have a six pack even though you're 65 years old, you know what I mean? And so that scrolls up. It's never the goal, right? The, the goal is never to be the before guy. You always wanna be the after picture. 
No one's like, man, I would just, I would love to just be the before picture for one of those. I would love to be that. I want to be the before I started losing weight, I'll look like this. No one's goal is I want to be on a weight loss magazine as the before picture, right? You always want to be the hero on the back end of it. Well, here's what happens for us. As humans, we are hardwired to be heroes. We're hardwired to be successful, to be the ones who save the day. And what happens in our lives as we live life and understand that maybe we're not the hero, we have a few ways we can go, two main ways. One is that we begin to pursue heroism even more so, or we begin to cower from any um, sense of having to assert ourselves as a hero. But what happens for us when we read Scripture is that we read ourselves into the story as the hero of the story. And if you're like me, you've done it throughout the book of Exodus. Because most of the time, I am the good Moses, right? When Moses is leading and he's drawing people to him and he's being really obedient, man, that's, I'm, I'm Moses. When he's stupid and human, I'm like, gosh, that sounds just like my friend. But if it's, if it's better, it's me. So here's what I want to... Ex- explain for us today. We're going to read through Exodus 32, and here will be the danger. The temptation is to read yourself in as Moses. Be careful as we read it. Be careful as we read it. On the screen now are scriptures I'm going to use this morning, just a few less than we used last week, but it's a few here. I want to get to show us something here that I think is powerful from the New Testament that relates back here to the Old Testament. So let's study together Exodus chapter 32. And uh, we'll see where the Lord takes us today. Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. We're going to read through it all together. I'm going to teach as we go through it. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. So Moses has been up on the top of Mount Sinai with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. He took a few men up with him. He has sent Aaron and Hur back down to babysit the Israelites while he's gone. But he's up there for 40 days meeting with, with God. He's gotten the blueprints of the tabernacle. He's been given the Ten Commandments. Some powerful, um, game-changing things have happened on this mountaintop experience for Moses. But while he's up there, the people down below, the Israelites, they saw that Moses delayed. This word delayed is interesting. It doesn't mean that he's taking a while. It's the idea that it's to the point of their shame or embarrassment or disappointment. Husbands, you know exactly what this feels like. Because your wife is taking forever to get ready. And you understand the shame and embarrassment it is to arrive at that party 30 minutes late or that dinner 30 minutes late or your daughter is taking forever or your son can't decide what shoes to wear. He can't remember where he put his shoes. This is the feeling. They are they're ashamed. They're embarrassed. They're disappointed. We had followed him and he's been gone. Let's just remember. It's been 40 days. 40 days. So 40 days ago from today was August 9th. Do you remember anything from August 9th? Like almost a month and a half ago, almost six full weeks, Moses has been gone. No sight of him. So understand, it's not like it was just a weekend. It's been 40 days. And so they're ashamed, they're embarrassed, they're disappointed. Then we read, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him. This word gathered together is a violent idea. They ganged up on him. They rushed him offensively. They rushed Aaron and they said to him, up. Make us gods. This word in the Hebrew is Elohims. Make us little g, false gods, who shall go before us. What they're asking for, that phrase before us is, we want gods before our faces, gods that we can see. We can't see God. We can't see Yahweh. We see a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire, and that's fine. We used to be able to see Moses, and that was good for us. Now we can't see Moses. All we need is a God that we can see. As for this Moses, do you hear Like, do you hear the frustration? As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. So a few things to remember. Where the gold came from? The gold came from the Egyptians. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt. They weren't wearing gold. But now they've been given gold because at the 10th plague, the Egyptians were so fearful of Yahweh, the Israelites' God, that they sent them out of Egypt to be free and gave them whatever they wanted. And so here's what they have is all the gold from there. And now up on the mountain, at the very time this is happening, God is telling Moses, I've got a plan for the gold. I want the gold to be used to worship me, to build the tabernacle. So now down at the base of the mountain, Aaron has different plans for for the gold. 
He received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it. This is an intensive word. He, he worked hard at molding it. He softened it and molded it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Now we read calf and we think a cute little baby cow. The idea here is a young bull. They made a young bull. Now it's fine, but what that re references for us back to the gods of Egypt is this was a god of Egypt, this young bull. And he was, he was the god of fertility and promiscuity. This is who this God is. And so they're saying, we can't see our God. Give us one that we can see. And, and Aaron decides to, to make this one, this, this young bull, Egyptian God of fertility. And they said to the rest of the Israelites, these are your gods, plural, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So no longer is it Yahweh, no longer is it Moses. Now it's this bull but it's in conjunction with the other gods. Verse five, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar. Now Aaron is at this point second in command. He should be leading the priesthood and he is overcome by the people. And he says, now I see the bull you're worshiping. Let me help and give you an altar. Let me give you a place of worship before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Now, most of our Bibles have that L-O-R-D capitalized, which is the Hebrew word Yahweh or Jehovah, the one true God. Here's what Aaron is saying. Aaron is saying, I'll give you your golden calf, but we're also tomorrow going to have a feast to the one true God. Aaron is compromising. Aaron is saying, okay, I'm not going to do away with Yahweh. I do believe in him, but I see what you're saying about this, about this God we need to see. So let's do that and we'll do this. The theological term for this is called syncretism. Syncretism basically is the blending of multiple belief systems or religions. So Aaron finds himself confronted by the people where he should take a stand and say, listen, God is good. You've seen what he's done. And instead says, no, I get it. Let's build this. I'm going to build this calf, this young bull. And then also I'm going to build an altar for us to worship the one true God. And tomorrow we're going to have a feast to Yahweh called syncretism, the combining of both. Verse six, and they rose up early. Now you only raise up early when you're excited about something, when there's urgency or excitement. And this is different from verse one, where it was taking forever. They're so frustrated with how long it's taking, they can't wait for the next day. They wake up early and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, we've got to read into what's happening here, put some context around it. A peace offering was an offering you would offer to God, and you would offer uh, meat, and you would put it on the altar, and you would cook it. You'd cook, the, cook it on the altar, and that aroma would be pleasing to the Lord, and then you would take some of that meat, and you'd be able to eat it as a peace or a fellowship offering, as if to say, we are dining together, we are eating together. So what they're eating is this peace offering offered to Yahweh. Also, what they're eating with it is whatever God has provided. Remember, he's miraculously, provi miraculously provided manna. He's provided water. This, whatever they are eating is something God has provided. So they sit down to eat. They participate in the peace offering, the worship of Yahweh. But then they stand up. They rise up to play. Now, there are kids here, so I'm going to walk tenderly here. Play is not like playing Monopoly or Jenga. Play is not hopscotch and foursquare. Um, play is a bit more physical than that. Are we good? It's, uh, it, it's cuddling. That's, that's what's happening here. All right? So what they've done is now, they're, and this is, again, this is how you would worship the young bull god. And so they've, they've eaten to worship Yahweh, and then they stand up to worship and participate in worship acts of this young bull God. Are we good? I don't need to go any further. Okay, this is, again, syncretism. I don't want to do away with one or the other. Let's just do them both. So they sit down to eat the peace offering. They stand up to worship. This is laughter and other kind of activity. So keep in mind, these people just a few months prior, had witnessed some miracles that you and I probably will never see. I mean, I pray that we will, but we never. They saw the 10 plagues. They saw God deliver the Israelites after 430 years in slavery, saw them be delivered from Egypt through 10 mighty acts of God. They saw the plague of the firstborn. They saw all of it. 
They saw God split the Red Sea in two and they walked through on dry land, not muddy ground, dry land. They crossed the sea. They looked back to see God then envelop the Egyptian armies in the Red Sea. They saw all of it. They wandered in the wilderness. They saw God provide manna every morning from heaven. They saw quail in the evening that day. They, they saw water come out of a rock. They saw bitter water turn sweet. They've seen the presence of God literally leading them. They just saw Mount Sinai shake with the sound of thunder and there were flashes of lightning as God descended upon it to speak to Moses just 40 days prior. They're not that far removed from mighty, mighty acts of God. In fact, 40 days prior, God had offered them relationship. He had asked, will you? And they said, we do. We're all in. So they've said yes at the altar and a month removed from the honeymoon find themselves with another partner. This is what's happening here. And at this point, God is telling Moses, or God sees it, verse seven. Now God's gonna speak to Moses. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people. You guys do that with your spouse? Now they're your kids. This is what's happening. Your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. Up until this point, God has said, remember, I'm the one who rescued you from slavery. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And now it has turned so evil, so bad, God is saying, they're not mine. They must not be mine. They've corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. Israelites called him this Moses. God is calling them this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked meaning it's hard to turn. It's hard to turn them. They're unrepentant people. They're stubborn. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. That word you is not plural. It's not y'all. It's singular. So he's speaking to Moses. And it's interesting in the Hebrew language, the same word for alone is the word Noah. Let me be alone. Let me rest. So what God is suggesting to Moses is, remember what I did with Noah? Let's just do that again. I've had it up to here. They're unrepentant. I've tried everything. I've done the Red Sea thing. I've done the manna and the quail and the water. I've done the fire and the smoke. I've done all of it. And at this point, I'm ready to just do away with them. And let me just start over with you, Moses. Let's just go from this mountaintop and let's just go forward from here. So what God is saying to Moses here, let's just start over with you. But then look at verse 11. Moses implored the Lord his God, Yahweh, his Elohim, and said, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt? Do you see what's happening? With great power and a mighty hand. Now let's just take a second to see what's happened to Moses. Because in Exodus chapter three, God is calling Moses to go set his people free from slavery in Egypt. And Moses is full of excuses. I don't speak too good. I can't do it. I'm weak. I'm old. I can't do it. I can't go back into Egypt. He's full of excuses. And now he's imploring the Lord. After Moses steps into Egypt and speaks to Pharaoh and things get worse for the Israelites and they're mad at Moses, Moses tells the Lord, you made a mistake. I'm not doing this. Look at them. They hate me. I don't like them. Let's just call this whole thing off. Now we're here a few months later and Moses is arguing with God on behalf of the Israelites. There's some growth happening here for Moses. And he implores them. These are your people. You brought them out. Verse 12, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent that you bring them out? To kill them in the mountains, to consume them from the face of the earth. Now Moses is appealing to God's reputation among the enemies. The Egyptians are going to think that you, Yahweh, that you aren't any better than their gods. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. This is Moses speaking to God, the creator of the universe. Remember, he says, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Israel is another name for Jacob, and Moses brilliantly doesn't call him Jacob, but calls him Israel. Your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. 
So if Moses first appealed to God's reputation, now he's appealing to his promises. Verse 14, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So now is the moment when we have a huge debate about whether or not we can change God's mind, right? This is the moment. This is where we have to have the conversation. Can we change the mind of God? And my answer is, I don't know, but I think we should pray as if we can. Notice, though, Moses isn't asking God to step out of his character. He's just reminding him. So that's a whole other sermon or series or year long of sermons that I don't have time for. Um, But I would just say, I don't know. But it seems like maybe we should pray as if God listens. Then verse 15, Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. This is the Ten Commandments. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God. You need to circle that. We need, need to remember that in a few weeks. Engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, man, it's been a while since we've heard from Joshua, hasn't it? Last time we heard about Joshua was back in 24, Exodus 24, where they walk up the mountain with the elders and Moses then goes up higher into the presence of God, towards the presence of God, and he rests there for six days. You remember that? And Moses takes Joshua with him. So here's where Joshua is. Joshua is in the waiting room. Moses is in the office with God, the doctor at this point. Joshua can't hear anything. He was just his ride there. That's all that's that's happened. But while he's there, he hears the commotion going on outside. And so Moses makes his way out of the presence of God. And immediately there's Joshua with eyes wide open, wondering what to do. And he says to him in verse 17, there's a noise of war in the camp. War? Now, if you know anything about Joshua, Joshua loves him some wars. So maybe he always hears war. I don't know. But I would argue, I think he's right. It may not be physical war, but there's definitely spiritual warfare happening down there. And Joshua's ear is attuned to it, so he hears it. But Moses replies, this is not the sound of shouting for victory, nor is it the sound of the cry of defeat. This is the sound of singing that I hear. Now, I don't know what your worship experience is like here and who you sit next to. And if it sounds like war or like singing next to you, but that's not what this is about. This is Moses saying, no, no, what you hear is not that. What you hear is the revelry. It's the worship of a false god. Verse 19, as soon as Moses, he came near to the camp and saw the calf and the dancing. Again, we're not square dancing. Moses' anger burned hot. And so now he's feeling what God was feeling at the top of the mountain. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of a mountain. What a scene is happening here. Then look at this. Gosh, I love this in verse 20. And he took the calf they had made and he burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Any dads want to do that from time to time? Gosh, what, I mean, what a moment here. It's like, you, you want this? You want this cow? All right, here, drink it. You want to worship this God? You, you want this to be in you? You want this to take residence in your heart? Here, try this. What a moment is happening here. Moses, the anger has burned hot with him. But then Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And you've got to think Aaron is like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm helping them. I'm loving them. And Moses' perspective is, what, what have they done to you that you would bring this kind of sin upon them? Jesus would say, it's better for a millstone to be tied around your neck and you'd be thrown into the water than to lead one of these little ones into sin. What do they do to you that you're leading them to death? Do you not understand your role? Then he continues in verse 22. Aaron says to Moses, let not the anger of my Lord, my master, Moses, burn hot. Now this sounds like Moses speaking to God, doesn't it? But here's the difference. You know these people. You know they're set on evil. So Aaron appeals to Moses' experience with the people. And Moses says, listen, man, you know how they are. You know how your kids get. Like, what did you want me to do? You were gone for 40 days. I don't know how to cook, so I gave him Oreos. Like, I don't understand what the big deal is. 
You know how they are. You know they don't relent. You know they're annoying. You know they nag until they get what they want. You know how they are. That's, that's Aaron's excuse. That's his excuse. He continues in verse 23. Listen, they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron, caught in his sin, makes excuses and casts blame, which should take us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. What's interesting is that this sin directly follows a command of Sabbath in Exodus 31, which ironically enough happened back in Genesis as well. Many scholars would tell you this moment right here is a recreation account. We're trying to reset everything back to Eden. Verse 24, so I said to them, Aaron says, let any who have gold take it off. And so they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and the craziest thing happened. (laughs) You'll never believe what just happened. A calf came out. I asked for the gold. I threw it in the fire. I, I mean, I don't know, man. I don't know what to tell you. Like when I was here, the lamp wasn't broken. I left and came back and the lamp was broken. I don't know. Where'd the ball come from? I have no idea. I don't know how that happened. I don't know. This is Aaron's excuse. Aaron's excuse is, I I don't know what to tell you, Moses. I mean, I just threw the gold in there and this calf popped out. Now, what we know is that he had to work hard to form the calf. But Aaron now is unwilling to accept responsibility and he makes more excuses. And this is the excuse. Man, I don't know what happened. I was doing the best I could. And then out of nowhere, this happened. And when the Moses saw that the people had broken loose, that's Hebrew for off the chain, literally, or out of control. When he saw they had broken loose of the boundaries, when they had um, come off the chain, when they were out of control, then I love the parentheses, because Aaron let them do that. For Aaron had let them break loose to the derision, that's the amusement of their enemies. They became a laughingstock to the enemy. Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on Yahweh's side? Come to me. And the sons of Levi gathered around him. Huge moment here for the history of the church. Levi, now the sons of Levi would step into a royal lineage of priesthood. It's why the next book is called Leviticus, Leviticus. It's just big what's happening here. They gathered around him, verse 27. And Moses says to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you. And go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. Now, if you're like me, sometimes it gets hard to reconcile this God of the Old Testament with a God of the New Testament through Jesus who says, love your neighbor as yourself. Is that hard for you? Because here there's this moment where God says, kill your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is like, no, 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 love your neighbor as yourself. So it feels like this weird thing is happening. But I need you to remember, first of all, is this, that before anything, God is a holy God. He's holy, and he demands perfection and holiness. And God is in his rights as a loving God to pour out wrath upon those who have stepped out of his law for them. He has every right to do it. But there's something significant happening here. Keep reading and we'll understand it. 28, the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000, underline that, circle it, highlight it, 3,000 men of the people fell. 2.1 million people, 3,000 are now dead. Now, when we read sons, neighbors, companions, uh, we read that a little more literally than maybe it's meant to be read. This is more of the idea of, I want you to find the leaders. Who did this? Whoever it was. And if they're a brother to you or a son or a neighbor or a friend, I don't care, kill them. That's what he's saying. I want to find the the leaders who made this happen. Who, who approached Aaron? Who made him do it? Who gave the gold? Who? Find those people. And what we learn is out of 2.1 million people, it's only about 3,000. But it doesn't take much leaven to leaven the whole lump. But here, God will not stand for idolatry in his camp. And so he takes action. And 3,000 men of Israel fall that day. And Moses said, today you have been ordained. You, the sons of Levi, have been ordained for the service of the Lord. 
There's been a cost, each one of you, the cost of his son or his brother, that he might bestow a blessing upon you to this day. To be on the side of the Lord will cost us something. Verse 30, the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go back up to the Lord, to Yahweh. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Again, look at the growth of Moses from Exodus 3 and 4. Let me, let me go talk to God. You've sinned a great sin. This is awful. Let me go see if I can make atonement, if I can cover for the sin. Let me figure out how I can, how I can make atonement, how I can pay for the debt you just created. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people, not your people, not my people, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now I implore you to forgive them of their sin, if you will forgive their sin. And then he says this, but even if you don't, please blot me out of the book that you have written. See what Moses is doing on top of a mountain? He's offering his life as the atonement for the sins of his people. So God, first I'm asking you to forgive them. But if you can't, and I understand, then let my life be the atonement. Let my blood be what covers. Let it be me. Does this sound familiar? Because it should. Theologians call this that Moses is a type of Christ. The idea is that he is a shadow of what is to come. He's not perfect. He doesn't have all the detail, but... He's acting like Jesus would. So he's offering now his life as an atonement for sin. But notice God's response in verse 33. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. I appreciate your appeal, Moses. I'm gonna handle it my way. And now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. So he says to Moses, I appreciate what you're saying. Listen, why don't you let me do my job and you do yours? I'll handle this stuff. You do what I've asked you to do. I appreciate it, but I can't take your life as an atonement for their sins. Not really how it works. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. So the Lord refuses Moses' offer. And then the Lord sent a plague. We don't know what it is, but it leads to death. We read more about that in Numbers because they made the calf the one that Aaron had made. So I want you to notice something here. Moses could not offer atonement. It couldn't have been Moses. And so God says, thanks, but no thanks. That's not gonna cover it. It's not enough to cover that debt. You do what you do, I'll do what I do. And because Moses couldn't cover their sin, there still had to be punishment for their sin. Does that make sense? Because he couldn't cover it, there still lingered a penalty for sin remaining. All right, so the temptation now for us is for me to preach a sermon on how you should be like Moses. And how goodness, I want to. I want to preach a message that says, uh, intervene for your people, Go lay your life down for your friends. I want that, that's what I want to preach. I want to preach that to us. But here's the issue. That's not what the story's about. The issue here is not that, because we're already drawn to being the hero. So you want to hear, go be the hero. Go save the people. Go offer your life. Go lay down your life. You, you want to hear that because we're the heroes. But here's the problem. We're not Moses. And we're probably not even the Levites. You know who we are in the story? We're Israel. That's who we are. No matter how long you've been in church and how much Christian radio you listen to, you're not Moses. You're Israel. You're not the one offering atonement. And even if you think you're Moses, your atonement means nothing. You can't cover the sins of the people. God will not accept it. So here's the beauty and the horror of the book of Exodus. This is our story. This is us. Like the story of the Israelites is our story. And I know we're tempted to mock them and make fun of them. We can't believe how silly they are. But it's our story. Like Israel, you and I were set free from slavery. We were delivered from slavery to our sin. And how did he do it? Through the shed blood of a Passover lamb. And then God led us through the waters of baptism. He provides for us in the wilderness. He has shown himself to be good and generous and kind. He has displayed to us his mighty acts of power and justice. He has made himself known to us. And if you're following Jesus, you've said, I do. You've agreed to it. This is us. But like the Israelites, 
in the moment of God's goodness, when we get frustrated and stressed and we think he's taking too long and we get annoyed and we get anxious, we rebel. We don't patiently wait. We don't trust the hand of the Father. We rebel. We continue to rebel. We forget the goodness of God in the moments of waiting, in the moments of darkness and pain, and we run back to the slavery that he just saved us from. One of the plagues of the 10 plagues was that God killed all the livestock. What God did in that moment was to say, I've defeated this God. He's dead. He is nothing when it comes to me. And yet the Israelites are saying, we remember a God and maybe this God will come back to life and save us. They've run back to a God who has proven himself to not be worthy, to not be faithful, to not be able to do what they need him to do. And yet they run back to him and we do the same thing. We run back to gods that we think could save us before and we ask them to save us again. Maybe this time we'll be different. Ultimately, we just think we know better than God. If we're gonna be honest, we just think we know better than God. We think we can handle it. It's been 40 days. I've got it from here. It's the exact same feeling many of you felt yesterday watching your college football quarterback. And your coach, I wouldn't have done that. I would have gone for it. I would have kicked it. Some of you, you felt that way watching flag football yesterday with the crossover. And you were loud about it. And let me just say, on behalf of Micah and Dwayne, we could use some more coaches. So if you want to coach, right? But we think we know better than God. We fail to acknowledge him for the thousands of new mercy he gives us every day. And what we do is we begin to act like we've earned it. Of course he's good to me. Have you seen what I've done? Of course he's good to me. I'm a pastor. Of course he's good to me. I can play the guitar. We think we've achieved it like we did it. We conquered. We overcame that addiction. All while eating his manna and drinking his water from the rock. So maybe we aren't too far off from Israel like we thought we were. And so maybe it's not that we worship ourselves, but maybe it's something else or someone else we worship. We worship a spouse. He saved me from this. She saved me from that. Or our kids, they gave me value. And so we build false idols and we say things like, behold, behold my wife who brought me up out of a land of loneliness. Behold my kids who brought me up and gave my life value and purpose again. Behold my job who brought me up out of a land of poverty and without purpose. Behold my bank account, behold my house, behold my skills, behold my past, behold my future, behold my gifts, behold my job, behold my raise, behold my promotion. Matt Chandler, a pastor in Texas, says this. He says, we ascribe divine attributes to the stuff of future garage sales. And God will grind it into dust and make you drink it. You want to worship that? You can have it. You want to worship that job? You can have all of it. Then you can have 80 hours of it, maybe 90 hours of it. You want to worship those kids? You can have all of them. And you can rearrange your schedule and you can lose sleep. You can have it. You want to worship that spouse? You can worship her. Have all of it. In the times when things aren't okay, you're not okay, you can have all of it. That's what you want. You can drink it. Problem is, it's all stuff of future garage sales. It's a car, it's a boat, it's a house. But it's not just the Israelites, this is us. And we can mock them all we want. And we'd say, I'd never forsake God. Well, neither would they. They just want to add to it. And like them, we want a God in front of our faces, a God that we can see. Ultimately, we want a God that we can manage. That's what we want. We want, don't want a God who does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. We want a God who does what we want, when we want, how we want it to be done. So we want to build gods. So we want Jesus and that sport. We want Jesus and that relationship. We want Jesus and that political power. Can we talk about that in church? One of the greatest false gods in our culture today is the God of government. But we are far too nuanced to call it that. So we call it evangelical, and we call it religious. It's an idol. It's a false God that we have placed our hope in. Behold the Republicans who brought us up out of the land of poverty. 
Behold the Democrats who brought us up out of the land of slavery. No, that is idolatry. Behold Jesus who brought you up out of the land of slavery to sin. Now we can talk about how quickly the Israelites moved from I do to this is taking forever. Let me build a calf. But here's the truth. We will leave today at 1130 and we will drive home or we'll go to a restaurant and it won't take long before we're building our own calves. It won't take long before we're scrolling social media, we're trying to find people saying the things that we like them to say and then we agree with it and we get all fired up about how they view politics or how they view sports. Some of us will, will go to a restaurant. I hope that food will satisfy us. We'll go shopping thinking that will satisfy us. We will lay on our couch and watch NFL football hoping that will satisfy us. And you know it won't because you're a Falcons fan. You understand? <laughs> It'll satisfy you for two, maybe three quarters. And then you'll be right back where you started. Can we stop? Can we just stop? We run to false gods. We are not that different from the Israelites. We book a vacation. We, we run to our spouse or our kids. They are idols to us. The very gifts that God has given us to worship him, to build him a house of praise, we've thrown into the fire to build an idol that we might worship. And then... If God is gracious, we get busted. In God's grace, he sends someone down the mountain to call you out face to face. And like Aaron, we will be called to face it. And we'll be tempted to offer excuses and blame. And we can laugh at, I don't know what happened. I just threw the gold in there. But listen, how many of us have said things like, I mean, I don't know. I just downloaded that app. And next thing I knew, I was addicted. I don't know. Just start listening to this podcast or this talk radio when the next thing I know, I'm, I'm obsessed with politics. We're not that different. I mean, I don't know. It was just one conversation. It was just one text. I don't know. It was just one drink. It was just one puff. I don't know. No, you know. At some point, we have to come face to face with our sin and our idolatry. And the beauty is when we do, we realize we've got no shot We've got nothing to offer. We have sinned against the holy God willfully. We stay in it. We keep choosing it. No one does it for us. It's no one else's fault. It's not your parents' fault. It's not your wife's fault. It's not your kid's fault. It's not the government's fault. You and I willfully choose idolatry. And we stay in it because it's convenient and it's comfortable. And it takes too much to move away from it. It takes too much to fight it. So we pray and we ask for a Moses to go atone for our sins. We ask for our wife or our husband or our mom or our dad or our kids to go atone for our sin. The problem is Moses can atone for our sins. You don't need a Moses. You need Jesus. Moses can't. He's a sinful man. A blemished lamb can never pay for sin. We need a spotless lamb. We don't need Moses. We need Jesus because the consequence is death. The consequence is death. 3,000 died that day because Moses' mediation, intercessoring, would not appease the Lord. And this is what's beautiful about the finished work of Jesus. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, John writes, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have a mediator with the Father who is Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation. The word propitiation is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word atonement. He is the atonement. Moses isn't. Abraham wasn't. David wasn't. Your wife isn't. Your mom and dad aren't. Grandma isn't. Your kids aren't. Your job isn't. A president isn't. Jesus is our atonement for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And because he is our atonement, he can cover all of our rebellion. You have no way out of your idolatry without the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Well, in Exodus 32, it led to death. Jesus gave his life as the atonement for our sins, and on the third day, he rose again. 
And a number of days later, he ascends to heaven, but he leaves behind the Holy Spirit who descends upon an upper room in Jerusalem and men and women get filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter, who once was like Aaron, who gave into the demands of the people, stands up and proclaims a sermon a lot like this one. You are Israel. You're the ones who killed him. You put him on the cross. And instead of 3,000 dying in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day 3,000 souls. So while Moses can't cover it, praise the Lord that Jesus can. And that sin doesn't have to lead to death anymore, but our sin can in fact bring forth repentance, which brings forth life. That's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus. But you'll never appreciate it while you think you're Moses. You only appreciate it when you finally admit, I'm Israel. I'm Aaron. Not my wife is, not my kids are, not my bosses. It's me. I'm the problem. I'm the sinner. I'm the idolater. I'm the adulterer. It's me. I'm the murderer. And when we do that, when we get there, and we recognize no, no number of ascents up the mountain will satisfy the Lord. It can only be satisfied through the finished work of Jesus. Then we rejoice at the resurrection of Jesus. For many of us, we've lost the wonder of the gospel because we have worshiped Jesus and our works, Jesus, Jesus and our good behavior, Jesus and our offerings. And as long as you think you're part of it, you'll never worship the God who is all of it. He is the atonement for our sin. And the way that he set us free from our slavery to sin is the same way that he sets us free to walk now in freedom through the finished work of Jesus, not through good behavior, not through effort and trying and striving, but through, through resting on the finished work of Jesus. And today, the appeal for you is, first of all, come to Jesus. Worshiping idols, it's consuming you. And you're drinking of it. It's rotting your soul. Come to Jesus. Many of us, we did come to Jesus, and now we've run back to false gods. And you've got to see them for what they are. They're not toys and hobbies. They are idols. And they're killing you. And because of the finished work of Jesus, now you can repent and run back and find life again. It's there for the taking. Then I think there are some of us today who we've got friends and family members caught in dark sin wrecked us. We've lost sleep over it. We're dreading the future. And the temptation is for you to offer your life as an atonement. It won't. You can't. Only Jesus can. Bring them to Jesus. Bring them to the throne of grace. Pray for them. Pray that God would meet them. He would intervene. And if it takes 40 days, it takes 40 days. Don't build an idol. Let God do what he is doing. He is worthy and he is able to do more than we could ever dream, think, or imagine. So in our temptation to be the hero, let's remember we're not the hero. We're Israel. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Let's just process what's happened here this morning. This is a way to study God's word that will make you feel really good about yourself. But I would argue that's probably not the right way to study the word of God. There is a way to study the word of God where we learn what God is actually saying. And so what he's saying to us today is that we are Israel. I don't know what the idols are for you. I don't know if it's the pursuit of affirmation, if it's some sort of addiction and sin that you're stuck in. I don't know if it's the pursuit of wealth and uh, fame and security and comfort. I don't, I don't know, but you know. Because it's that very thing that if it was taken away from you, you wouldn't know what to do today. So here's what I'm going to ask first, just by means of confession. If this morning you've come face to face with the fact that you're an idolater, that you've begun to worship at the altar of a false god. And sure, you're here today because that's what we do, right? We sit down to eat and then we raise up, rise up to go play. How many of you just in honesty would raise your hand and say, yeah, that's me, I've I've prone to idolatry. There are idols in my heart. My heart's a factory of idols I've begun to worship. You can raise your hand. Don't be ashamed of it. Be ashamed of sin, not ashamed of repentance. 
wonder how many of us today would say, no, actually, it's, I'm, I'm attempting to be Moses for somebody and I can't. It's too heavy. It's not for me. So I've been trying to fix and to rescue and to hero into something. And maybe today what you're recognizing is your atonement will never cover the sins of that person. Only the shed blood of Jesus will. Would you raise your hands? Would you pray for me that I would give them to Jesus, that I wouldn't try to fix it, I wouldn't try to do it, but that I would allow Jesus to praise the Lord. Here's what I want to offer you to do. I want to offer you to come forward and pray at this altar and to lay it here. Not to rise up and go play today, but to sit and to destroy the idols in our hearts. Ask God for help. Maybe it's someone, a friend or a family member. You need, you need Jesus to be uh, real to them. Maybe you need to come, you need to pray, ask for that. You need to lay it down. Lay your striving and your work and your... Um, trying to be a hero, lay it all down today. So as Mallory plays, you're more than welcome to come forward. I'm gonna pray, and we're not gonna sing another song or another chorus or anything like that. We're just gonna pray. I'm gonna invite you up here. I'm just here to make a declaration today. God, we love you. God, the truth is we also love other things, and those other things have consumed us. They've taken our affections and our attention. They've taken our time and our finances. They've taken our calendars. And while we've tried to pretend that we're not like that, God, we are so much like that. And while we want to be the hero, Father, in your grace, you're reminding us that we're not, you are. And so, God, I pray that for those of us today who are holding on to idolatry, holding on to a God we can manage, uh, that you would destroy it, throw it in the fire, burn it into dust. For those of us today who are trying to be the atonement. God, would you convict us in such a way that we are passionately on our knees praying for you to intervene in ways that we're never able to. God, I can think of friends today who need you. Not, they don't need me, they need you. And I'm sorry for the time that I've tried to be you. I'm not you. So God, would you move in mighty ways, challenge, convict, comfort, heal, restore, redeem, We want to worship you and you alone. Not you and, not you but, but just you. Father, we worship you today. With all that we have, help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.